Over the past few years, I've observed individuals and organizations navigate the pandemic, post-pandemic life and work, divisive rhetoric, wars, illnesses, and the list goes on. People are stressed out, burned out, fearful and anxious, and they carry all of this stress and trauma in their minds, in their bodies, and right into work. The primary coping strategy is a common default reaction we all know as compartmentalizing. It's not only expected of people working in service of other humans, but it's celebrated and often worn as a badge of honor. The problem is, compartmentalizing is not a sustainable strategy over the long term. So that leads us to the question, what is? This question is at the heart of what my guest Kristen Cox and I dive into today on this episode of Service Without Sacrifice. We'll be exploring part two of my book, Tell Me My Story, Challenging the Narrative of Service Before Self, which is all about the stories we tell ourselves to help us survive the hardships and challenges we encounter in our lives. Kristen is a behavioral health coordinator for the Seattle Fire Department with over three decades of experience coaching leadership and designing intervention and prevention programs for various government, nonprofit, and private sector organizations in the Pacific Northwest. She's also a dear friend from whom I've learned a lot. I couldn't have imagined talking about this part of the book with anyone else. To give you some context for our conversation, I'd like to share the opening section of part two of Tell Me My Story, which talks about our surviving stories and how they help us show up in our day-to-day lives. Surviving. Our surviving stories are influenced by the hardships, tragedies, and traumas of our shaping stories and experiences. They're the result of stories we tell ourselves to make meaning of the challenging and painful experiences we encounter as we move through life. When we bump up against thoughts, beliefs, values, and perspectives different from our own, our brain initially views these new perspectives as threats and activates our sympathetic nervous system. Surviving stories are experienced as nervous system reactions, which are designed to keep us safe when we're in danger. The problem is, our brain can't differentiate between real threats and perceived threats, or threats to our bodies versus threats to our identity or ego meaning that our sympathetic nervous system can stay activated for much longer than it should be. There are a total of five nervous system reactions. In addition to fight or flight, there are freeze, fix, and fake. Fight shows up as blame, criticism, judgment, or even violence. All of these can be turned in towards ourselves or out toward others. Flight is about escaping a situation physically or mentally. This reaction often leads to numbing our feelings and emotions through addictions and is also the reaction that makes it difficult for us to connect meaningfully with others. Freeze means feeling stuck, unable to make a choice or move forward out of fear. Fix is an intense desire to change ourselves or our circumstances and comes from a place of feeling unworthy of love and belonging as we are. Fake is a need for control that often pushes people to hide themselves behind a mask of perfectionism and prevents them from showing vulnerability.
Kristen and I work together to help leaders and groups create optimal conditions for healing from trauma and building resilience so they can keep doing the work of serving others without sacrificing their own health, well-being, and relationships in the process. This is important because we can't expect to keep serving others if we're exhausted and depleted. It's about putting on our own oxygen masks before we help others with theirs. In the conversation you're about to hear, we talk about normalizing these types of occupational traumas for first responders and other humanitarians. We also talk about what happens when compartmentalizing no longer works, the impact of trying to mute negative emotions, the role of self-compassion as we try to make new choices, and what leaders and organizations can do to address individual and organizational surviving stories. I'm Dimple Devalia, and this is part two of a story about service without sacrifice. Kristen, thank you so much for being here today. I'm just really excited to actually see you after such a long time. Today, we're going to be talking about part two of my book, Tell Me My Story, Challenging the Narrative of Service Before Self. And the part that we are focusing on today is part two, which is the concept of surviving. In the last episode, we talked about shaping. So really how our shaping stories create the lens through which we experience ourselves and the world around us. And I kind of think about surviving as the stories that we tell ourselves to help us try to make sense of the challenging and painful experiences that we encounter as we move through life. Kind of a protection mechanism that we, I think, generally have come to know as fight or flight. But as you and I know from our work, also includes freeze, fix, and fake. With that kind of context being set, I just wanted to start with the question of, What came up for you as you move through this section of the book? It's hard for me to limit just to the section that uh, is surviving. Yeah, feel free to talk about the other sections too. Okay, because I was really struck by, I love the framework that you created and makes me want to go back and kind of dig through some of the things that I've been through. Because like you, I have only told pieces of my story along the way and never really seen the whole arc all laid out and then examined. But one of the things that came up for me while I was really focused on the surviving section was all about the first responders that I work with and have worked with for 30 plus years, all of the things that they do to survive that career. And they get very creative. And at one point, I think in your book, you talk about compartmentalizing. And I tell people regularly that if I had a dollar for every time somebody said the word, oh, I just compartmentalize. (laughs) And that's their only strategy. I would never have to work again because it's not only rampant, but it's accepted and encouraged in the first responder world. Well, yeah. And I think even beyond the first responder world, I talk about this a lot, that as humans, we have like a certain capacity before we're going to hit that wall. And when you're dealing with other human beings, like it's messy and it's challenging. And especially for first responders, the things that they're seeing and hearing and experiencing day in, day out, which I think about when I was just, I shouldn't say just because it wasn't just, but when I was listening to stories of persecution, trauma, torture, things like that, day in, day out, like these things wear on you. 
And I agree. It's very interesting that compartmentalizing has been celebrated almost, right? Like the more that you can do this, the stronger and the better you are. But we know that's not true. So can you talk a little bit about, well, I guess, first of all, your work with first responders, but also how do you see this kind of compartmentalizing strategy, which is not really a good coping strategy? How do you see it kind of breaking down sometimes for people or not working in the long run? Which is always. Yeah. <laughs> it never works in the long run. For context, I've spent 30 years working with U.S. Coast Guard and the first responders there. And then also now I work with Seattle Fire Department and the responders here. And, and along the way, I've done a lot of other work with other agencies that are first responder agencies as well. Law enforcement, search and rescue, things like that. And I'm going to go one step further We don't just encourage it in our culture. So that's kind of an organizational thing as well. But individually, people take great pride in their ability to compartmentalize, right? It's a kind of a badge of honor and courage. And what I hear and see is that that is the strategy for a lot of people. And they don't even consider that it might not eventually serve them until it eventually is not serving them well at all. And how they know that is either their body is doing things that is hitting the panic button for the stress response, similar to what you described in your book about your experience, and they're ignoring it and they're pushing it down. And so the stress response keeps getting more and more intense. And I'm just going to take a little quick pause to do explanation about that that I use with first responders all the time that I think is very instructive and people usually get really easily. When I took an advanced trauma training, we talked a little bit about how the stress response essentially keeps speaking to you in terms that you cannot ignore eventually. And I used that with my dog, my beagle, who we got when she was six years old. So she had a history that we didn't know about, probably some trauma in there because she was very skittish. And she was super hyperreactive. Anytime anyone came near the house, she would yell at the top of her lungs. And our instinct also, when we first got her, was to just say, shh, bunny, quit, 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 stop. And then eventually, when you lose your patience, maybe even yell at her. And she would just bark louder and louder and louder and more robustly. After I took that trauma training, I thought, you know what? I wonder if she is trying to tell us something and we are not listening. And that's why she keeps ramping up. So I approached the next time she barked when the Amazon guy showed up in the driveway with, thank you, bunny. Thanks. Thanks for letting us know. And she looked at me like, you have never listened to me before. Why would you listen to me now? Wow. But she stopped. And eventually, when we did that every single time, she ended up quieting down. And she's actually a much less skittish dog, much happier. Because again, she's like, listen, I'm trying to tell you something, just like your stress response in your body. I'm trying to tell you something. And You're not listening, you're not listening, and I'm just going to have to up the ante. What we see with first responders is it shows up outside of work first, right? Because they hold it together at work, and then they've got nothing left to be able to cope reliably, and they just have no tolerance left by the time they leave the shift. And anybody they encounter outside of work sometimes pays the price, including their families. Yeah. Issues start bubbling up outside of work and then at work. 
And then there's a little bit of compassion fatigue and that kind of flat affect. And then there's conflict with their coworkers because they're all just trying to kind of hold it together. They just don't have the capacity anymore. It's used up trying to keep everything down. And I appreciate the explanations as well. First of all, it's amazing about your dog too, because I think that's true, right? It's a very common universal experience for all living beings to kind of go through that. On top of what you're saying in terms of the conflict, what I see as well is the resulting like shame that starts to build up too. To your point about compassion fatigue, I think as people who are in these lines of work, we start hitting those walls. There's a lot of shame that comes up with that too, that feeling like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I do this? And it starts to feel very isolating as well, despite the fact that we know that so many people around us, especially in similar lines of work, are experiencing the same thing. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of like the shame and the stigma and what are some of the things that you're kind of thinking about as you work with your first responders about how to help them navigate through that? I was doing a resilience talk the other day with some of our more seasoned folks. And one of them asked the question, and they were absolutely sincere in the question. We were talking about compassion fatigue. And they said, is it ever too late? And what I noticed is that willingness to be vulnerable in front of a small group of their peers and the desire to learn a different way. Yeah. Because after a certain number of years, all of that has taken a toll on relationships and energy and health and satisfaction in their job. And I was using an example of one of the challenges of wanting to mute your feelings as if you have a remote is that you don't get to mute them selectively. Yes. You want to mute the pain and the suffering and the shame and the guilt and the experiences that were not pleasant. But the problem is you don't have a selective mute. You only have one mute. And so everything gets muted, yep. including joy, affection, intimacy, connection, playfulness, all of those things. And that's the thing that they want to figure out how to lift their finger off that mute button. And so we talk about toggling a little bit and playing with and experimenting in a fairly safe environment where you can widen that window of tolerance and really just naming that too. And like, listen, when you start to take your finger off that remote, it might not be pleasant initially. Yeah. And if you can stick with it and you can kind of just do the things you need to do to ground and exercise the skills that you're learning to manage that stress response. On the other side of that are all these things that you're looking for, love, connection, intimacy, joy, fun, frolicking, all those gratitude, appreciation. Yeah. And I think what I usually add to that also is in taking off, I haven't used that analogy of the pause button, but I love it because it's such a perfect visual reminder, right? But I think when we are removing our finger from the pause button, there has to be an element of really strongly practicing self-compassion as well, because yes. like we will continue to backslide over and over and over again in this desire to do something new and to make these changes. And we know that. We know that 
our shaving stories are those deeply etched neural pathways that have been there forever or for most of our lives. And our surviving stories are just these default reactions that we have. When we want to change them, it's not as simple as just lift our natural muscle memory for the finger is to go right back to the pause button. And so this idea of how do I have self-compassion, which is another practice that's not easy to develop. And it's so we have to be so intentional. That's sometimes another piece of this whole process that's so challenging is there's so many things where we've been moving through life, just trying to survive, basically. And when we get to that point of starting to cultivate that awareness and noticing like, oh, this doesn't feel so great. Maybe I need to make some changes. The level of intentionality we now have to bring to so many different pieces is a bit exhausting. And so what are some things that in terms of like how you help people move through that? Because I think that's something that I encounter a lot with people that I serve is just this feeling of like, I don't have time to do all this stuff. I don't have the energy to do all this stuff. Even though I know that, like you said, when I get to the other side of it, it's going to be so much better. But there's this gap between those two places, you know, that I think sometimes is hard to bridge. Yes. What I've had the best success with, I think, is explaining to people that you do this work because you have compassion for people, for humanity, people you don't even know. People who probably wouldn't necessarily associate with an irregular life and you have compassion for their situation and their circumstances. And compassion is not just feeling what they feel, but is wanting to alleviate the suffering. And so we talk about what that means. Even just being there, even if you can't do anything, witnessing their suffering is still compassion service. I praise people up one side and down the other for having that expansive compassion. And also we talk about the realities of the fact that you put your job and everything that you do for other at the top of the list and then your family Maybe they're the other way around. I don't know. Some people, right? And all the people that are in your professional life and your personal life. And then at the very bottom is you. And a first responder, which is the people that I work with the most, they will always put themselves at the bottom. And I've gotten to the point where I've said, okay, I'm not asking you to put yourself at the top of the list, although that's really where you should be for a whole bunch of reasons. And we talked about those reasons. but. I would be happy if you just didn't drop off the list. Yeah. Right? I'm okay as long as you include yourself. Your compassion cannot be complete unless you include yourself in that practice. Yeah. And then I've also gotten a lot of bang for the buck in talking about the research of compassionate service and how that actually improves not just your own well-being, but actually your performance, because that's culturally something that people are more willing to invest in, it feels less selfish than just for their own sake. I really like that. Maybe we can add a link to some of that research in the show note, if that's stuff that you can share. One other thing in your notice, name and navigate, I have begun including normalize. So notice what's happening, be able to name it and then normalize it. Hey, you're human. You've been through a bunch of stuff. Yeah. You've seen a lot of stuff. Yeah. And then you can choose to navigate that. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's the big piece that's like missing. I hear a lot of people talking about, and I do see it, like we're definitely talking more about mental health and nervous system reactions, things like that. But this idea of normalizing is still a bit 
challenging, especially in the workplace, right? Because yeah, like you talked about the first responders, I use the term humanitarian, but I use that pretty broadly to include first responders. I use it as, you know, anyone who's working to alleviate pain and suffering of others in this world. And so for anyone kind of in that line of work, like this idea of normalizing, taking care of ourselves, normalizing the pain and suffering that we have as a result of our work. And on the flip side of this, getting organizations to normalize, like acknowledge and normalize that, hey, these are human beings that work for us. And they are also going to maybe struggle as a result of what they're seeing and how they're working and all these things. And this is, I think, really challenging because a lot of organizations are so focused on profit or productivity, which Again, I say this all the time, like I get it. We go to work because there's work that needs to be done. So there has to be metrics. There has to be a way to ensure that work is getting done. However, having said that, I think that it's incredibly short-sighted for organizations not to realize that investing time and money and other resources into protecting the whole person that's working for them I talk about duty of care in the book and traditionally duty of care has been kind of limited to our physical safety and security in the workplace. But imagine if we looked at duty of care in this more holistic way as looking at it as a whole person and recognizing how the work impacts people and then being able to kind of address it in real time the possibilities for that, what that could do for organizations is really incredible in my mind. Yes. And again, a number of thoughts while you're talking because it's just such rich fodder. I will say one of the things that we've been trying to do is with leaders is bake into the culture some of the skill sets and tools and understanding of what resilient teams look like. Because again, sometimes it's all and how you sell it. Yeah. People aren't necessarily willing, especially even leaders, to say, this is for me, this is good for me, but I want my team to be resilient. And depending on the leader, it's either because they want them to perform really well or they want them to perform more or under really desperate conditions they have no control over. They want their teams to be able to show up and be mission ready. And then lots of leaders also want them to actually be whole yeah. by the end of the shift or the end of the career. And so there are, what we've been approaching it with is something called leading resilient teams. What does that look like? And the very first rule of that, just like you were discussing in your book, is you have to be able to understand yourself, that whole notice, name, normalize, navigate, so that you can role model it. Because it doesn't matter what a leader says, it matters what they do or not do. And people are watching them like hawks. Sometimes I have conversations with other people in this line of work where they feel like they're flinging themselves against a brick wall repeatedly that organizations just aren't willing to say, oh, great idea. Let's just take that on board. Let's put new policies in place. And so, again, it's that doing what you can, being compassionate with yourself, but also the organization, because it takes a while for an individual. I love that poem, Autobiography in Five Oh, yeah. Yeah. The first time you try something, you have an intention, but it doesn't, you don't even notice. And then the next time you have an intention and maybe you try something and it doesn't work. And then the next time you have an intention and it does work. 
And then the next time, then the next time and the next time, it didn't work again. It takes, it's one step forward, two steps back. But that's true with organizations as well. But as long as we keep planting the seeds and connecting with other people doing this work, because that's such a big piece of it, we eventually, I think, tug the string enough that the systems that are in place that are keeping us kind of locked in this culture end up beginning to unravel and in a good way. Yeah, yeah. No, and I really appreciate that. We have to keep showing up and, like you said, planting these seeds because eventually they will take root and bloom into something. But you and I both do work with organizational trauma as well. And I know it's not a term that a lot of people are familiar with, but it's really this idea that just as we as individuals can get wounded, so too can the systems within our organizations. And it makes sense, right? Because our organizations are made up of people and people create the systems. And if people are traumatized and wounded, they're going to create systems that reflect that. And so it's not surprising. I love the idea of having these moments with the leaders. You and I had the opportunity when I was with USCIS and I had launched the Daring Leaders Project to do something similar where we were really focused on helping leaders look at themselves first. And it was a very strange concept for people. Yeah. And I remember like when we would do like the end of the day kind of feedback that we would get every day and how the first couple of days people were like, what am I doing here? This is crazy. But that by like midweek, we started to see a shift happening and people were like, oh, okay. The word self-centered has such a negative connotation. And so it's not about being self-centered, but it's about being like self-first in a way with the idea that if we put ourselves first and are keeping ourselves healthy, that number one, we're modeling that for the people around us. But it also has kind of that trickle-down effect for our teams, right? Because if we know how to balance and regulate our nervous systems, we know with mirror neurons, we can help other people do that. And so like there's a lot of benefits to working with leaders in this way to help them address like their own surviving stories. Yeah. Like recognize them first and then address them. And I don't know, like I still hear people saying, oh, these kinds of things don't belong in the workplace. But I think we spend the majority of our lives at work, if not at the workplace, like where do they belong? Well, I'll tell you, after several decades of doing this work, I started asking supervisors, managers and leaders what is the most stressful part of your job? And it had nothing to do with operations. And they're very well-trained tactically and strategically, operationally, but they had almost zero training in how to manage the things that really stress them out, which was conflict at work, managing somebody's performance. If somebody that worked for them had a personal concern or issue or stress, so they were worried about them, how do I approach them? How do I support them? What do I say to them? What are the resources? talk about survival strategies, I would say most first responder folks would be like, I'm just going to punt that to someone else. I'm just going to tell them to go use the EAP. We call that the hot potato phenomenon. Like this person has a problem. You should go talk to this person. And it caused them the most stress by saying, hey, in order to reduce your own stress and have a more resilient team, wouldn't it be awesome if you had the skill set to have those conversations, to have those challenging relational kinds of trust building, psychological safety environments. 
what goes into that? Oh, well, one of the things is you need to be able to emotionally regulate yourself. What does that mean? Use that kind of as a jumping off point. If you can feel it, you can heal it. If you can name it, you can tame it. And again, that's true for individuals and teams, but it's also true for an organization. For sure. For sure. It's interesting. One of the biggest surviving issues over the last few years came out of COVID, right? It was interesting to just be watching what organizations were doing at the time because, yeah, to your point, people did not know how to have conversations. And the biggest conversational gap was around grief. We do not, as a society, understand how to support people who are grieving. And a lot of people lost loved ones through COVID. But I say this a lot, that we lost our way of life, how we were used to living life. And that was definitely something to be grieved. And I know in our organization, there was a lot of really higher level leadership doubling down on productivity markers and stuff during that time. And I was thinking, people are trying to figure out how to educate their kids and be stuck in the house. And why aren't we acknowledging the collective grief? Why aren't we acknowledging the very real trauma of going through a global pandemic, which most of us had not been through before? I feel like there's just a lot of missed opportunities that we continue to see popping up. I agree. What the research shows is that in order for people to heal from any kind of high stress or trauma or grief event, it takes a feeling of safety, especially psychological safety. And then also it has to be in context with connection. There has to be some other human or even dog animal to basically co-regulate with. And the pandemic really limited people's options in that arena. What does that mean to create safe places and connections when you can't physically get in the same room and stretching that? The good news for me is that I think people just became really painfully aware where they didn't feel safe and where they didn't feel like they had connection. I would guess, I don't have any research on this. I'm sure there is, though. I would guess that a lot of people were feeling a lot of that prior to the pandemic, and then it just put it in relief. It just really brought it to the surface. And so to me, that's a good thing. I mean, it was painful, but it really focused and highlighted, oh, yeah, lots of work to do in this arena. And we need to start talking about it. I agree 100%. And I think that talking about it is the biggest thing. Well, talking about it, but actually taking action, right? I mentioned this in the book, especially in like the government. I had seen a report come out from OPM, which is the Office of Personal Management. They're kind of the HR arm for the government. And they created this whole framework to respond to some of the things that came out of the pandemic, which I think that's great. But once again, there was zero mention of workforce health and well-being. So this part is really important to me as I kind of work through this and want to support organizations is like, I think this is an opportunity right now to start building these kinds of things, looking at how things are impacting the workforce into the cornerstone of everyday policymaking and workload assessment, things like that. Because to your point about normalizing, the more that these things become part of the fabric of organizational culture, the less they're going to be like these things that are going to take up a ton of time or anything like that, because it just will become part of the organization. 
we both have kind of used that analogy about the water that we're swimming in, like the fishes who don't know what water is because they're always in it. This idea of surviving, this idea of being in fight or flight, freeze, fix, fake, this is the water for individuals and for the organizations. And if all of us don't start acknowledging it and start naming it, normalizing it, it will just continue to see the same patterns being repeated over and over again with a lot of unhealthy people. And that's a shame because I've always said that this type of humanitarian work, first responder work, things like that, it takes a very special personality and person to do that type of work that can withstand the pain of what you're seeing and experiencing and things like that. And if we don't take care of the people who are doing this work, who's going to then go out and take care of the people who need these services? I will often hear some of the folks who are kind of edging towards retirement in the first responder world commenting on the differences in generations as the new folks are coming in. And my most recent response has been, listen, I have a ton of respect for anybody who decides to become a first responder or a healthcare provider, a law enforcement officer after the pandemic, because they are going in with their eyes wide open. Yeah. They saw what that was like and they chose still to do it. Yeah. And I have such respect for that. To your point about what organizations can do and also the survival mechanisms, the five Fs, Part of the work that we've done so far is when we're getting more focused on naming that. But we have yet, I believe, a ways to go to talk to people about what else they can do, right? So noticing and naming and choosing to navigate, I think part of the next story is giving them healthy options. What does that look like? What is the menu out there? For example, on the organizational front, the Coast Guard did something fantastic during the pandemic, they launched a one-hour web meeting every Wednesday and they recorded it. So no matter where you were or when you were able to watch it, you could watch it on, it was called Wellness Wednesday. Mm. And they just started having conversations about resilience and grief and loss and anxiety and mental health. And then they started weaving in sleep and all sorts of stuff. And they still are doing it today, every week, Wellness Wednesday, every week. And that is one of the best practices, right? I think that's, you know, sharing the conversation. So I wish there was a bigger repository for best practices as we're developing them, because I think we don't all have all the answers at the moment. But I think we need to focus instead of like a moth to a flame. If we tell them what not to do, they will go straight there. <laughs> if we encourage them to do these other things, maybe there's an option. Experiment with this. See what it's like. Take, take what works for you as an organization. Where is that repository of information about how to navigate? Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that also taps into our individual sense of agency. If we have multiple options that we can choose, because as human beings, we're all different too. What works for one group isn't necessarily going to work for the other, or what works for one individual isn't necessarily going to work for the other. And so having different options, I agree with you, it'd be nice to have more things like that. And this is where I think bringing in the kind of story healing story circles can be really effective because similar to what you just described with the Coast Guard, in my previous agency, we started the coffee chats, which were another opportunity for people to kind of get together and talk about different topics and like grief, like anxiety, or even just random things like I'm a vegan, here are some of the things that I like to cook or whatever. But it fostered that sense of connection, first of all, 
and help to stem that kind of the loneliness that we can feel when we're not feeling connected and especially when we are in these remote environments now. But it also allowed people to hear what others were doing. And it was that sharing and exchange of ideas. And so I do like that as an intervention, but I agree like it would be nice to then capture these things and have them somewhere. I will also say that it's not just telling your story. It's being able to honor your story Mm. in my mind and then be able to live the lessons with the critical and stress management work that I do. We usually wrap up group interventions with some kind of like, yes, you've told your story, but now we've also talked about how you've coped and what's working and what's not working. So it's not just what happened to you, but it's what you did with it. And then you get to choose. You choose what you're going to carry forward in honor of having participated in that situation. Yeah, that's really beautiful. That's really beautiful. And I think that aspect of ritual is something we need to integrate more as well. So I really love that. I can't believe how quickly the time goes. So I want to thank you again for being here today, Kristen. And as we close out, I just want to ask one final question, which is kind of in the container of this brave space that we've created together today, or that we continue to create even outside of this. What does service without self-sacrifice mean to you? It means showing up with your whole self present. I feel like you have a duty and a responsibility to care for yourself with the same loving, kindness, tenderness that you would for anyone else that you serve. That is what refills your bucket. It's not just external. It's what refills your bucket so that you can continue to pour for those who need it. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here and for all the extraordinary work that you're doing in the world. I have learned so much from you and I'm really grateful for all the opportunities we've had to work together and, and that hopefully we'll continue to do in the future. We will put a link in the show notes about where you can connect with Kristen. And for everyone listening, I just want to remind you that at the heart of the word humanitarian is human, and we can choose to serve others without sacrificing our own health, well-being, and humanity in the process. So until next time, be well, and thank you so much for your service. Thank you for your service, Dimple. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Service Without Sacrifice. If we want to put the human back into humanitarian work, we have to get this message in front of as many people as possible. And this, my friends, depends a lot on word of mouth. So if you enjoy these conversations and find them to be valuable, please like, subscribe, and review Service Without Sacrifice on your favorite podcasting platform. And share it with others who might benefit. And producing this show is a labor of love. Your support will help me to continue creating new content and sharing stories of hope healing, and human-centered leadership for years to come. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm working to build a community with my newsletter and content hub, Dear Humanitarian. You can find out more about my writing, the book, our online story healing community called The Hummingbird Circle, as well as how to work with me over at rootsintheclouds.com. And I'd like to take a moment here to acknowledge how grateful I am to live, write, work and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Dogue and Piscataway tribes. And I'd also like to take a moment to thank the team over at One Stone Creative for editing and producing this series. And finally, I'd like to thank you so much for your support. And most of all, thank you for your service.